Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krebs. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Chris Nielsen and Bart Batchelor, co-creators of the Adult Swim Canada show PsyCops. It's an animated story of two paranormal investigators at PsyCops who investigate alleged sightings of aliens, ghosts, demons, and other hocus-pocus nonsense. It's like Mulder and Scully from X-Files, except they're not that bright. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Belinda Carlisle, one of the world's most successful solo recording artists. From the LA-based punk rock-influenced band The Go-Go's, the most successful all-female rock band of all time, to her prolific career as a solo artist and giant hits like Mad About You and Heaven is a Place on Earth, she's been a presence on the Billboard charts for 45 years. She joins me in a few minutes to talk about her new record, Kismet. First, though, let's meet Kevin Heggie, director of the documentary Tramps, which is now playing in theaters. His film is an up-close and personal look at the New Romantics, a counterculture scene that emerged in late 1970s London. It united outsiders, misfits, and bohemians like Boy George, the scene's most famous member. It's a look back to a time when the artists may have starved, but they looked fabulous. But it's also a portrait of artists and their unwavering need to create, whether the canvas was the outrageous clothes they wore, the jewelry that adorned them, or the music they listened to. Tramps does a deep dive into the new romantics as an art movement rather than solely a pop cultural one. If you, like me, read magazines like the New Musical Express, Face Magazine, or ID, you saw photos and you read the stories. Tramps brings that scene to vivid life. Here's Kevin Heggie, director of the film Tramps. This is a bit of a labor of love for you. You've been working on this for some time. Tell me a little bit about maintaining enthusiasm for a project uh, over a, a number of years. Well, I think I I have an enthusiastic, maybe like overly enthusiastic sort of personality in, in general. I've never really been chill about anything if i like something i like it a lot and the kind of unraveling of all these relationships or or just the time and effort it took in to gain a lot of people's trust just that process itself um took many years especially because around their legacy the new romantics it's a lot about hiding and performing clothes and you don't really get a lot of sense of the personalities behind those those photos as iconic as many of them are. So it was important for me to put the time in to gain their trust in the way that it would allow us to access something more, uh, you know, under the surface and something more personal about these people and and doing that with the hopes of, of talking to them as artists and people who have, you know, survived that lifestyle and gleaning whatever kind of inspiration or insight you can from from their stories there's a feeling of something new happening rejecting the old i mean it's a duty of every generation to reject the old the new romantics or the blitz kids certainly had uh, a, a do-it-yourself uh thing that i just think shines through so brightly in this movie and is so important to the whole movement i'm always curious to talk about the word movement itself, because it, it very much is, you know, interesting young creative people are are um, energized by the idea of change and moving forward and experimentation. It could be somebody had to toe in fetish rubber 
to start with Elizabeth I. It wasn't recognised for the kind of transgressive thing that it was. There was a kind of cultural divide. And because people didn't have much money, it was very much a sort of self-made yeah. image. We keep saying so-called new romantics because they don't like that name that comes up in the film a few times. Yeah, that seems to be the case with any, uh, you know, even if you're watching a documentary on, I don't know, it just seems to be the case that when there's ever any subculture that has been um, encapsulated in any way in, in pop culture or the mainstream, there's usually a rejection of whatever that, uh, whatever that term that is, and usually made by, you know, journalists or something to kind of try and a picture. You know, body what you're seeing because and I think that's kind of sad because the new romantic thing like if I didn't know what I know now and just seeing it from being a kid and everything you would just think it's everybody looking the same everybody dressing up as pirates or because some of those more iconic looks rise to the surface and they never really fall away but you know my impression it's something I I really liked talking to these people about was how it was like a sin to have the same look as somebody else. Like Boy George had his look, you know, and Jeremy Healy had his look. They didn't want to repeat a look, but they had a strict identity. And if you took some elements of their, uh, you know, performed identity, that was like a mark on you or against you, you know, because it, it's, you're not coming up with something new. So it was this weird, aggressive branding that we see now in so many ways happening just on a more like rudimentary level. I think a lot of people expected to be big stars, you know, but never quite got there. And I look back at that time and realize how really fearless I was. If it was really too much, they'd come up and punch you in the face. Yes, the narrative of, of dressing up and showing off. How wonderful. <laughs> what a life. This film is very much about that scene, uh, yeah. but it's also about something that is often, I think, overlooked somewhat when you look into histories of punk rock and, and the Blitz Kids and New Romantics, and that is survival under a right-wing government. And, you know, a lot of these people kind of had that, well, let's party for the moment because there's nothing for us here. There is no, literally, as the Sex Pistols said, there's no future here for us. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful moment. It really is more about a, a specific moment in history where where several things were colliding, like the free art school and the, the ability to live in, in squatted spaces. And there was a freedom that was sort of weirdly provided to them that allowed them to play around with their ideas and intersect create these intersections with their work most of them were in art school or fashion school so naturally you start incorporating your friends into making that work and you know i think that for several of those reasons there was this flourish in in work that we call the new romantic thing but it really was um a diy lifestyle of making the most from from nothing you're listening to kevin heggie on the richard krauss show see his film tramps now in theaters and the Sex Pistols thing too, like I didn't really want to get into that. I didn't want to have to talk about that again because I just thought it was such a diluted story at this point in time and didn't want to waste anybody's time. But uh, the producer, uh, Mark Moore, who's in the movie, he told this story about hearing that song for the first time. There is no future in 
emotional one because he was an orphan and, um, you know, this was a new sound and it revolutionized his mind and and his youth and he, he felt spoken to. It was like kind of an emotional um, and important song in that way, mm-hmm. which unfortunately because of time and, and like capitalism or whatever it is, um, it's become sort of watered down the idea of it, but it was really special to re-engage with the idea of that song and that album and that band as something much more purposeful than like, because of my um, age or, or whatever, I hadn't really realized the the depth of it. And uh, so that was nice to discover um, through, through working on the film. There's something that feels to me as though they were living without consequences simply because they're, they, 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 it felt bleak for them. Everything else felt bleak for them, and they were they were trying to live beyond that. I think with my first movie, I would describe it as like, yeah, like making something beautiful out of a uh, squalor mm-hmm. type of situation, you know. And that continues to be a theme that I'm interested in. And in this film, I think it really became central to the whole thing because, like you mentioned, the conservative governments and how that changes you know, people's ability to make work uh, or survive and, you know, pay the bills and then still make time to be creative. And that was very much the case of what was going on in America and even Canada um, and many places in the world uh, for arts communities were and are experiencing that struggle. So I thought it was really important to bring that story into contemporary conversation too. and, And because it is pretty familiar to anybody trying to make art today too. It's, it's really hard. Um, well, I think it's Judy that. blame in the film. If I'm remembering correctly, who says London's terrible. Now you can't afford to live here. There's no great art being made here. The artists have all had to leave. And if you think about New York, if you think about Toronto, if you think about any other city, all the yeah. artists have been priced out and they have, they've gone elsewhere and the cities are worse off for it. Well, yeah, it's artists that make a city interesting to live in and and create the culture and create the work around what's going on that enables us to sort of uh, investigate our lives through it, you know, our collective lives, you know, as members of a city. I think looking at a movie like this, I hope to, like, have it be a source of inspiration for, you know, that that this is a continuous history this is something that's always happened it's happening in many cities and it's at an old tale of artists being sort of shoved out of uh of their own communities um judy did talk about like he thought eventually you know they would just have a wall around london and everyone else would be forced on the outside and but that would be where you'd want to be anyways so it's like build the wall build the wall for the artists not Shouldn't really reference build the wall, but you know what I mean. Like, um, <laughs> it, would, it would definitely be better uh, on the outside. Yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. That was director Kevin Heggie talking about his new romantics documentary, Tramps, which is playing in theaters right now. Check it out. It's worth a look. Let's get to know Belinda Carlisle. As the lead singer of the Go-Go's, who produced hits like Our Lips Are Sealed and We Got the Beat, she fronted the most successful all-female rock band of all time. Yeah, 
As a solo artist, she topped the charts with songs like Mad About You, I Get Weak, Circle in the Sand, Leave a Light On, and Heaven is a Place on Earth. record, Kismet, marks her first new English-language studio recording since 1997 and a triumphant return with hit-making songwriter Diane Warren. Belinda Carlisle joined me via Zoom from her home in Mexico City. Thank you for taking some time to speak with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me. (laughs) I read a quote from you where you said, my life has been a series of amazing happenstance and coincidence. The fact that I'm sitting here still doing this since 1977, it's as if I'm in tune with the universe. And I wonder if that in tuneness with the universe is where the title Kismet came from uh, for your new album, because that's essentially what that means, right? Right, right. And it's it certainly sort of sums up the whole <laughs> the whole way this project came together, which is um I was planning on retiring or semi-retiring and slowing down a lot. Um my son went into a coffee shop in LA. He saw Diane Warren across the room. He never goes into this coffee shop. <laughs> she never goes to this coffee shop at the time that they met up. My son went up to her and introduced himself and she freaked out and she goes, oh my God, get your mom on the phone. What is she doing? So they call me. So I get this FaceTime out of the blue, the surreal. And um, Diane said, what are you doing? Get down to the studio right now. I have some hits for you. And she had just written <laughs> Big, Big Love a couple of days prior. She didn't know who it was for. And then she was like, bingo inside her head. So I was like... Whoa, it was like a lot to sort of uh, digest. And, you know, it was a, it's a big commitment doing something like this. So I wasn't really sure whether I wanted to do it. But um, Diane, you don't say no to Diane Warren. So mm-hmm. I went down to the studio and she played me some songs and I freaked out. And I said, okay, let's go. So um, here I am. So if it wasn't for my son running into Diane and her with that song, it would this would never have happened, this whole thing. And that is Kismet. It's totally it, it's like yeah. the definition of Kismet. So <laughs> yeah, that's it was when it came time to name it, I just I just knew right away it was like that was it's Kismet. And I that's been part of my vocabulary for a long time. Anyway, so yeah, here we are. Diane Warren uh, and you worked together 25 years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what it was like working with her after a couple of decades, two and a half decades later. Uh, Does she work differently? Do you work differently? Uh, Did you mesh just as easily as you did before? Well, she's one of those people that, you know, everybody has one or two or more. I have a few where you cannot see them for years and just pick Mm -hmm. up where you left off. And I remember when Diane and I worked together on like I Get Wake and World Without You for the Heaven on Earth album, we got on really well. I mean, it was like no weirdness, no awkwardness. I thought she was totally like, you know, funny and eccentric and like a great person, a great human being. So she hasn't changed much. (laughs) She hasn't. She's just more (laughs) successful. And um, so it was like, 
I think with I think the only difference is is that probably my confidence because I was kind of still trying to find my way back then, and now I'm more confident as a singer. I think she's probably more confident as a songwriter. She, I mean, mm-hmm. look at her. You know, I mean, <laughs> I know. so. Um, but yeah, there was just like picking up where we left off. Um, so much fun and so much joy working with her again. I would suggest that one of the things that uh, for you uh, made it a little different is that perhaps 25 years ago, you were more concerned with having hits. It, it was at the the, the peak of your uh, post Go-Go's career, the, the pop career. Mm-hmm. You're selling so many records. Now, from what I understand from reading about you, you say that that weight of all that expectation is lifted. You just right. kind of don't care about that stuff anymore. And I think that's really freeing. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I mean, after I was dropped um, from my record company when I turned 40, the day after I turned 40. and At least they didn't do it on your birthday. <laughs> At least they didn't do it on my birthday. <laughs> You're listening to Belinda Carlisle on The Richard Krause Show. Her new record, Kismet, is available wherever you buy fine music. So, But that began the sort of the most interesting part of my career in my life. I mean... You know, a few years later, I went into the studio and and did my French album, Voila. And I was like, I don't care if anybody hears this. I want to do exactly what I want to do. It was an ex- experiment. It was the most, it was like, the, for the first time in my life, I got to work from my heart and not have to worry about coming up with like the goods, you know, for a big corporation, which was, I did it for years and years. And, and it's fine. I got used to it because it was my life, but it's it's a lot of pressure. So the last two albums um, were completely out there. You know, the French album, which which was a critical success, but not a commercial success. The um, the mantra album, which totally everybody was like, didn't know what that was at all, but I did. That was all I counted. Had, had, had. But I loved doing those because I didn't have the pressure. I could do exactly what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, that is how I can't work any other way. So I can't just do an English speaking pop record for the sake of doing it. I won't do that. It's just I, people people will be able to tell. People will know. And I, and I don't want to do that. So, yeah. What do you think a song like Big, Big Love, the first single from Kismet, and the Mantra album, for example, have in common? <laughs> I think there's a passion, right? I think that's what it possibly could be. I think you can hear the passion and joy in both of that. Wilder mm-hmm. Shores was so much fun to make. I mean, because I chant every day and then I do yoga every day. So for me, it made total sense to put Kirtan music into a pop song format. Nobody mm-hmm. had ever done that before. Um, so for me, it made sense. It didn't make sense to anybody else. But I was passionate about it, and I had a blast making it. And I was passionate about all these songs off of Kismet, and it was a blast singing them. And I, and people can can tell. I mean, I think that that that's one of the things that people respond to mm-hmm. on this EP. It's it's had such a great response. Um, I think partly because of the music, and partly because of that. 
talk about the song Sanity as being the hardest song that you've ever sung in your entire career. Tell me why. Right. That <laughs> chorus, that chorus is like, um, it's hard to sing without sounding so static. And it's kind of all over the place, that song. And um, it, it wasn't hard for me. To, it was just the most challenging, I'd say most challenging song for me mm. to sing. But yeah, it was really difficult. And um, the other ones were a breeze. But I mean, this one, I mean, once I, I mean, I worked hard on it on my own. So I was able, I was ready when I went out to the studio. But yeah, it was, it's it's a hard, if you can hear that it's a hard song to sing, it's not easy. Even though you say, and you said earlier that you were thinking of winding down and maybe retiring, you've kept very busy, but you also have kept up vocal lessons uh, from what I understand, on a like a pretty much a weekly basis, um, why so? Um, no, it's most well. I when I when I know I'm going to be going on a tour, doing on the studio. I mean, I'm always working on it. When I'm downtime, I don't do it, but I do breath work every single day because I do that because of my own personal practice, my mm. yoga practice and meditation practice. It's called pranayama, and I do that every single day. And um, because I do it every single day, it's made a huge difference in my singing and uh, in a good way. People have asked, um, what are you doing? <laughs> Why does it sound so different? Um, it, it sounds, you know, not that you sounded bad before. And I know that I don't have the best voice in the world, but I know it has character. But it's changed everything for me with my singing. That's just a, that's just one of the sort of um, benefits of 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 doing breath work. There's a, a, a lot of other benefits, the, the, and those are the the reasons why I was doing it for, um, you know, spiritual, um, uh, mental health, whatever. Um, but but it just so happens that it's great for singing too. So um, when I'm like right now, I'm getting ready to go into rehearsals. So every day I'm like 20 minutes with breath work and I do my vocal lessons too now, but um, yeah, it's a lot of work, but I, but the breath work is anybody who's into breath work, like Wim Hof and all those people, like, which I am like ice baths and, and, you know, all this like heavy breath will understand what I'm saying. Cause it's, it's kind of, you get addicted to it. I would imagine that people don't really understand how difficult it is and how I just how much exertion goes into standing on a stage and singing for an hour or an hour and a half. So this breath work uh, is, I guess, maybe in terms of your performing is kind of like going to the gym. Yeah, totally. It's like exercising a muscle. I mean, my lungs are I have so much more control now. And and uh, yeah, I mean, now that I know that it's made a difference, I make sure that I do it. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, you know, yeah, I, I mean, it's gone from being sort of 
beginner stuff to now it's pretty intermediate when I, especially when I'm on the road and I do it religiously. You're listening to Belinda Carlisle on the Richard Krause show. Her new record Kismet is available wherever you buy fine music. But it's, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's amazing. The benefits of it are amazing. So many of the songs that you have recorded are really uh, little pieces of people's lives. And I hear them everywhere that I go. Uh, and I just wonder how it makes you feel as a performer uh, who's been doing this, as you said, since 1977, that people come to you and say, we played your music at my wedding. We played your music at my mother's funeral. You were my you know, favorite singer or an hour my favorite singer. Uh, it, it's to have a career with the length and the width and the breadth of yours and to have people come to you, that must feel good or... Has it been happening for so long that you're you're sort of immune to it? I'm not immune to it because I have the songs myself that yeah. when I was growing up or as a teenager that that sort of transcended music and it, it became moments or memories or so something very that I hold very dear. Um, so I understand that feeling and it's an amazing feeling at, to have when you hear people sing saying that to you because I like I said I have that myself so um yeah I mean I'm so lucky that that I've got to work with some of the greatest songwriters in the world and have created this music that that means a lot more than just music to people some of the music I think that you would cite as influential uh Roxy Music's Country Life that album the Beach Boys Pet Sounds uh the first album by The Clash, Violator by Depeche Mode. This is from a list that you put together yeah. of your favorite music. And then there's the fifth one, which I wanted to ask you about, and it's Maria Callas's, the opera singer's La Divina. Tell me yeah. a little bit about why, because that one is sort of the sore thumb one that sticks out on that list of rock and roll and, and pop albums. <laughs> Well, for me, I discovered opera about 25 years ago. And for me, it was like discovering punk rock. Mm. I got the same feeling I did when I just was well, discovered punk rock and Roxy music. For me, it was like, I didn't even know. I didn't even know. I mean, my reaction on a, like a cellular, very visceral feeling to her voice that I got, I can't put into words, but when anybody who is like, isn't a Maria Callas would know exactly. It's like, it's it's not, it's music, but it's something in her voice. It's a, and when yoga, they would call it the nod. It's like, it's this uh, energy thing that it's inside the voice. So, um, but yeah, discovering opera was like punk rock. And then I, you know, I went to go see Norma, I, Tosca. I mean, I've seen Madame Butterfly. So since then I've, I've, I've been to the opera quite a few times and, and, I absolutely love it. And I never thought I would ever say that. Last thing, I think when you uh, think about someone great like Maria Callas as a singer and what you respond to, I think it is the authenticity of the voice and uh, the the performance, which is what always really resounded to me uh, about punk rock. I really felt that if I could find the authenticity in 
the song or the performance, whether it was punk rock or country music or opera, it all was the same to me. You can hear that. Absolutely. And I think that there's, yeah, I mean, that definitely, definitely makes all the sense to me too. I mean, all the stuff that I've ever, I mean, like I mean, people can tell, you know, people, you know, it's not, they might not know why they feel that way, but, and it comes down to the performer, you know, feeling it and loving it, the joy or the melancholy or whatever that is, but bottom line, authenticity, I think. And there's a, there's a huge lack of that in the world now and, and the arts now. So, um, yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why Kismet has been, has, has the response has been uh, so amazing is because people can hear, the, they can hear the joy and they can feel the joy in it. Well, congratulations on it. And thank you for your time today. I appreciate oh, it. Thank you so much. It was nice talking to you. That was Belinda Carlisle on The Richard Krause Show. Her new EP is called Kismet, and it's available wherever you buy fine music. In this segment, we're going to meet Chris Nielsen and Bart Batchelor. They're the co-creators of the Adult Swim Canada show, Psycops. It's an animated story of two paranormal investigators who investigate alleged sightings of aliens and ghosts and demons and that kind of thing. The characters are like Mulder and Scully from the X-Files, only, well, they're not the sharpest knives in the door. Imagine if they were played by Abin and Costello. It's a fun show, and you can see it on Adult Swim Canada and Stack TV. Chris Nielsen and Bart Batchelor join me via Zoom from Vancouver. This is our chance to get some solid info on extraterrestrial life. We already know everything about aliens. They're gray, they're long, they pro. The big three. Whoa. Sideways blinking eyes. Seduction. Eggs and a corpse. She's an alien in disguise seducing men and laying eggs in their bodies. You got all that from a woman with sideways blinking eyes and a corpse with hatched eggs in it? What is this freaking CSI? Tell me a little bit about some of the influences because there's a lot of stuff going on here. I think X-Files is probably uh, chief among them, uh, but lots of other things too. So Tell me a little bit about where the ideas came from. Well, uh, the idea itself comes from Chris and I in our practice. We basically make shows about people with cool jobs. So we've done shows where guys are doctors, guys are hermits, maybe not fully a job, con artists. Uh, and for this project, you know, the one, our big project, we kind of said, what's, what's the funnest job in the world? Uh, paranormal detectives. So that's kind of what kicked it off. And then influences, Chris, we've got quite a lot. We've got quite a lot. And you, you touched on X-Files. And for us, kind of one of the cool things about X-Files is that it sort of takes place in Vancouver. And, you know, Psychops uh, also takes place in Vancouver. We really get to celebrate the city um, that we've worked in for, for years together. And that a city that is normally kind of like has to stand in for other places like on the x-files vancouver was never vancouver it was always like washington dc or like inexplicably like arizona or something like that and now we actually get to play here in our own backyard which is cool i live in toronto and i cannot tell you how many times i've stepped out of a house and it's nothing but yellow new york cabs on the street and uh usa today mailbox or uh, post boxes everywhere so <laughs> Toronto was never Toronto in the movies or television either. So Vancouver uh, is your setting. I mean, you you live there, you love it there. Uh, was it a conscious decision or was it just something that seemed obvious to you to set the show there? Yeah, it's a very conscious decision yeah. uh, where exactly what we're saying. And, you know, not to play uh, East Coast against West Coast, but 
a lot of the kind of great comedy in Canada generally originates from the East Coast. And there is kind of a really amazing hub out here that we sometimes feel doesn't get as much uh, light shined on them as we'd like. And so it was a way, a big part of this was before we made the show, we've been making comedy here for 15 years. And with everyone, so many different talented animators and voice actors and stuff. So it was a way for us to celebrate the people here by the show being here. Well, you started off working in advertising together, right? And so tell me a little bit about what that was like, because uh, you worked on huge campaigns for McDonald's and things like that. Were they necessarily funny or did you find the funny in them? What, what was that like? That's interesting. Well, yeah, maybe Bart, you could speak more to the creative side of advertising. I worked uh, primarily as an ed editor and director and animator kind of supplier side. Uh, but Bart got to work on the really fun stuff. And I, I, I mean, like he did his best to make funny happen in advertising. <laughs> That's exactly to Chris's point. I mean, you made great, hilarious stuff, too. You made some stuff that wouldn't have been very funny if you hadn't been the editor or director on it. Uh, but yeah, advertising was very intense. But we definitely, you know, throughout my career in that, I, I got to slip in a lot of comedy. I, I think that I, you know, probably along the way got known for maybe doing funnier stuff and then got put on clients that were okay with funny stuff. And to be honest, McDonald's was one of the clients that let us get away with a lot of ridiculous fun stuff. <laughs> like what? Uh, the campaign, my, the biggest campaign was this campaign called You Did It which was like these people finding little pieces of change like in their couch or their pockets. And this huge sign would come down and be like, you did it because it was so easy to afford these burgers. Like that's all, that's how much effort it took. They did, they, yeah, they did very well. You're listening to Chris Nielsen and Bart Batchelor on The Richard Krause Show. Check out their show, Psychops on Adult Swim Canada and Stack TV. Did you learn something about crafting messages in a quick and very uh, economical, and by that I mean time-wise economical way, working in advertising that perhaps has influenced uh, side cops because the shows are 10 minutes long. You don't have a whole lot of time to uh, mess around. You need to get to the point, get to the funny, and, and get it out there. Did advertising kind of help you hone that down? That's an amazing question. And yes, like uh, in a huge way, like advertising, not only uh, uh, let us kind of get like very concise messaging out, but also kind of like uh, it's a it's an amazing creative gauntlet to go through, like from the whole process, from pitching uh, ideas to a client and then working with the client as they slowly destroy anything creative that you've <laughs> given them and then somehow taking that and making something efficient and fun and, and amazing out of it. The amount of effort that goes into like a, a 15 second television spot, for example, would probably take longer than than a whole episode of our animated TV show by the end. It's it's kind of wild. So that's a, it's a an amazing education experience uh, gauntlet to have to go through. And uh, to the, the point of like cramming stuff into our show, um, Bart, like what, what's our, our script count or our page count? Oh man, so most uh, scripts for animation run a page per minute. So like over a little bit. So our 10 minute, a 10 minute show would maybe be a 13 page script. Ours are generally 26 pages. You really <laughs> cram it in there. And I hadn't really thought about that aspect. We we think a lot back on advertising and to Chris's point, the education it provided us on like an intense professional industry. 
But I hadn't really thought about messages that yet. It is a great question because like we're our goal in advertising, of course, is to get a simple message across as quickly as possible. And Psychops, the you know, the page count, the speed that it clips at is very reflective of our time in advertising. I think that there's a real kind of touchstone to older stuff here. Like I almost felt like I was watching Abbott and Costello play Mulder and Scully. Uh, while we were while I was watching this, and I I thought that was so much fun. I I loved the old Abner Costello meet the Frankenstein monster movies and that sort of thing. And this kind of has that same kind of vibe. They're two maybe not you know well they're two dim bulbs that have <laughs> an interesting job. And I think that's a really funny idea. That's really great to hear, and we love to hear that you can sense that history in there. I think once you get into comedy, you start to. You look everywhere and you go back, you go forwards. And I, I don't know how, you know, I think that comedy doesn't really reinvent itself as much as people would like to think. I think it just modernizes. So Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein is actually just like such a great read. And it's just mixed in with like the humor of modern net culture, yeah. you know, like like thrown up, you know, glossed on top of it. But we're not we're not straying very far from what those guys are doing. Yeah. And the language is a little different, too. <laughs> well very cool guys thank you so much uh for this and taking some time to talk to me oh thanks for having questions. us i really appreciate it oh, kid i can't believe you were just walking through the woods and we saw an alien i agree felix very convenient for two paranormal investigators why is he running though does he even know how lucky he is he's practically won the lottery when it comes to being subjected to a battery of strenuous examination that was chris nielsen and bart bachelor on the richard Krause show check out their show psychops on adult swim canada and Stack TV. A big thanks to Chris and Bart. Also, a big thanks to Belinda Carlisle for stopping by. Find her new EP, Kismet, wherever you buy fine music. And a big thanks to Kevin Heggie. His documentary on the new romantic movement is in theaters right now. It's called Tramps. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. Mm -hmm.